Shalom. And uh, I'd like to first take uh, an opportunity to do a mitzvah, which is called Hakarat Atov. And that is to say thank you to my dear friend Kalanit. And uh, she actually, I presented her with this class and said, listen, I'll do the academic religious work and I need her to go ahead and do everything else. And she took it upon herself. So I just want to say thank you very much. And we're going to get started now. Tonight's topic, tonight's topic is how to mourn in a positive way. Mourning is just one of those things that can either be positive or not. We should never know from it, but it's amazing how many times a person's first connection with Yiddishkeit, with Judaism and Jewish community, will actually begin when they unfortunately, we should never know from it, sit Shiva. They all of a sudden realize that what the sages did in the Shiva process is so therapeutic. To be able to just spend a week and have community come and show support and show you a living testimony of what your loved ones meant to them is very therapeutic, number one. Number two, generally speaking, being able to mourn rather than having to suppress is very important. To be able to mourn the loss rather than just, oh, you gotta be macho, you know, it happens and this, you gotta get up, you gotta move on. It's not good. You need to be able to mourn. Moshe Rabbeinu actually is the one that instituted two things. It's interesting. He instituted sitting Shiva and he instituted Sheva Brachot. Such different cycles of life. But he's the one that instituted it to have this concept. So the Shiva concept is extremely important. However, mourning, like everything else in Judaism, does need to have directives. In Judaism, we never have a free-for-all. There's actually laws about mourning. There's laws, by the way, in the olden days, in different customs of different nations, they would break pots and pans and throw things in pain, and that was an honor for the, for the person who passed away. It says, clearly, you're not allowed to do that. There were those that would repair out. There were those that would inflict upon themselves wounds, and that was all a sign. Rashi clearly tells us that according to the Torah, that is prohibited. So even when we're dealing with mourning and we're setting aside time for mourning, there is halacha involved because emotions is the most powerful and beautiful gift that God gave mankind in many ways even more precious than intellect. Intellect doesn't really get us places. We can know right from wrong and do nothing about it. We feel we start doing what pushes us into action is not the brain, it's the heart. However, this gift can also become very dangerous. We can end up not knowing how to deal with pain, not knowing how to deal with sadness. We fall into depression, or we go to the other extreme, going hyper, going on a beautiful shopping spree just to deal with the emotions we can't deal with. And we totally forget that at the end of the month, the credit card bill is going to come. And these are realities. So when we talk about mourning, there is halacha which tells us how to mourn. I'm going to share with you one very interesting statement before we get into the actual nine days of mourning the Beit HaMikdash specifically. 
A very interesting statement. I was there when the Rebbe began talking after the 30-day period of mourning for his wife. The Rebbe said the following. <coughs> he said it in Yiddish. I'm just going to translate it. As much as we don't want to move on from this 30-day mourning period, the Torah gives us no choice and tells us we have to leave the 30-day mourning period and enter into the next stage, which is the 11 months. It's a very powerful statement. The Rebbe is clearly sharing with us something that we all know. Sometimes mourning is what makes us feel that we're still connected. Sometimes we start worrying. Oh, I stopped crying. Does that mean I don't feel no more? I don't miss no more? I'm disconnected? Life's just going back to normal? So that statement of the Rebbe is very powerful. The Rebbe is saying that we don't want to move away from the 30-day mourning period. However, because the mourning period also has to be constructive and not just allowed to be turned into a de destructive force of feeling our feelings, so therefore the Torah tells us after 30 days we need to move on. We're going to revisit this statement later on. But I just wanted to share with you how the Rebbe even expresses that maybe his own personal desire would have been to stay in the pain of the 30 days of mourning. The Shloshim is a very deep mourning. Yet to understand that mourning is not just a license for us to wallow in non-constructive, destructive emotions. Okay? And I said both. There's non-constructive and there's destructive. So even if it's non-constructive, we need to stop. How much more so when it becomes destructive? With that being the case, let's talk about today. Today is Rosh Chodesh tonight. As the sun is setting right now, it is Rosh Chodesh Av. Rosh Chodesh Av is the second phase in the three weeks. What do we call the three weeks? We know the history that when the Jewish people were facing the destruction, it went in different categories. There's the first fast, which is the 10th day of Tevet, when they made a siege around Jerusalem. There's the 17th day of Tammuz, which just happened a little while ago, which is when they breached the walls of Jerusalem, which led up to Tisha B'Av, which was the destruction of the temple. They put it, the Holy Temple on fire on the 9th of Av, and it burned through the 10th of Av. Okay? So, in the way we deal with it, the mourning period starts on the 17th of Tammuz, that begins the three weeks, which ends with Tisha B'Av. In this three weeks, there's the first part, which is from the 17th of Tammuz until Rosh Chodesh Av. That's one level of mourning. But then the nine days takes on a whole new dimension. Tonight, before sunset, was the last time you were allowed to drink wine and eat a meat meal. Because now we entered into the nine days. Then you have the week of Tisha B'Av, and then you have Tisha B'Av itself. So tonight we're going into a very deep phase of mourning the Holy Temple, which is the nine days. Tonight is Rosh Chodesh Av. By the way, also, I would be remiss if I didn't mention, because we read it in last week's Torah portion, it is the first and maybe the only in the five books of Moses where it actually says the day that someone passed away. Tonight and tomorrow is the yard site of Aharon HaKohen. We read it in last week's Torah portion. And the first day of the fifth month, which is tonight, tomorrow. Napoleon 
when he found out about Tisha B'Av, he made a very interesting statement. He said that a nation which close to 2,000 years can keep on mourning the loss of the Holy Temple in their capital, Jerusalem, will endure. He was baffled. Where else do you see that there is a nation that is so tangibly mourning the destruction of their center of their community life, the center of their religious life, the destruction of the Holy Temple for close to 2,000 years. And we're not talking about just mourning it in some feely way. We're talking about practical halakha. We just spoke about not eating meat and wine besides on Shabbat in the nine days. The Tisha B'Av were fasting. You're not allowed to take a shower. There's all the laws that you have to sit on the floor like a mourner for the first ha ha until the second, until Tisha B'Av midday. We read the Book of Lamentations from Jeremiah. So it's not just, oh, remember, put on your calendar at some day, let's have a moment of silence for the Holy Temple. No, we, we seriously stop life routine. There's some very strict statements about those who go to earn a living on Tisha B'Av. So we're not so simple. This is serious stuff. So he said, a nation that can so deeply mourn. So let's put what he said in in practical dimension, okay? There's one thing, mourning something you had and you lost. Because you know what you had, and therefore you know what you've lost. Many of us, not even on an academic level, so much more so on a soul and an emotional level, even understand what it means to have the Beta Migdash. It's amazing how many times when we talk about the Beta Migdash, we talk about Mashiach coming, people are shocked to hear that in our prayers, every single holiday, what are we hoping for to be able to bring sacrifices again in the temple? It's amazing how many Jewish people will look at me and say, you're kidding, we're not going back to sacrifices, right? That made sense then, not today. Because we just don't understand. We don't understand this whole concept. So how can you mourn something that you didn't see, you didn't experience, your father didn't experience it, your grandfather didn't experience it, your great-grandfather didn't experience it. So where was the last two links in the chain where father told son, mother told daughter, oh, you know, I remember when the holiday would actually pack up and go to Jerusalem, would go, would walk up to the Holy Temple. You should have seen how it is from the diaspora, everyone coming up. When was the last time such a conversation happened between parent and child? As Jewish people, we're always hearing from our grandparents, oh, the way it used to be in Morocco. Oh, the way it used to be in Poland. Oh, the way it used to be in Russia. Oh, the way it used to be in Brooklyn, New York, before you moved away to some other uh, state. So that makes sense. Because you had it. You're telling your child about it. He's what we call in Halakha, in the laws of Shabbat, klirishon. You know the laws of cooking. When you take something off the fire and you put it into the first vessel, that's still hot enough to cook. Then it goes into the second vessel, not hot enough to cook. Then you have the third vessel, which is completely not, you don't have to worry about cooking. So in that same dimension, let's talk emotionally. There's the klidishon, 
who didn't experience it, but at least received it straight from the person who experienced it, they give it over to the cliche knee who still has a grandpa or a picture of grandpa, and then there's a cliche she, but we're talking about close to 2,000 years. And that's what Napoleon couldn't understand. Why are you and I going to feel so broken, sit down on the floor, dip an egg in bread and ashes right before the fast over something that not I have seen and not my predecessors have seen for close to 2,000 years. So Napoleon understood something is amidst here. How did they manage to keep it alive? And if they managed to keep it alive under all the persecution, there's got to be something here. Let's put things again in perspective. You know, there's a saying that parents tell children, which is actually not a good thing. Oh, you're crying? I'll give you something to cry about. You've been told that? <laughs> what does that usually mean? You think you're in pain now? I'll give you a patch, and then you'll forget the pain that you had. Right? That's what it means. <laughs> At least that's what my parent meant. <laughs> I probably shouldn't put this on recording because uh, it's probably illegal, but that's what it really meant. So now let's put that in perspective. Since the destruction of the temple, we have experienced that saying. We've had something new to cry about that the original crying seems to melt away. So pre-Holocaust, pre-Spanish Inquisition, if the last pain we remember, even if it's only in our history books, is the destruction of the temple, so okay, that's the last thing we're still crying about. But think about how much crying we really had to do since then. You would imagine that those who went through the Holocaust and those who are the survivor and the offspring of survivors and the grandchildren of survivors, they had such a new tangible pain. I have pictures of my grandfather's siblings. I have on this board the two sons of my grandfather, which we never even knew their date until my grandfather left me his diary and I saw it first after he passed away. So the Holocaust in my specific family is very tangible and real. My grandmother had a daughter and a husband. My grandfather had a wife and two sons. And then because they were first cousins, after the Holocaust, they found each other and they got married. And they had a single child, my mother. So this is real to me. There are names. I have pictures. So when you're dealing with a fresh patch, why would I be crying over the old patch? And obviously, again, academically, my mind knows if there wouldn't have been a destruction of a temple, we wouldn't have had a Holocaust, we wouldn't have been in exile, things would have been different, but that's the brain talking. How is it that we're so alive in our mourning for the holy temple, which neither us, we didn't receive first-hand testimony or second-hand testimony or 14th-hand testimony, we didn't receive any of that, number one, and number two, since then, we've had a lot more to cry about. That wasn't the last time we cried. So you understand what Napoleon is saying. 
Napoleon obviously realizes that the Jewish people are mourning in a different way. Actually, <laughs> quite unique to the Jewish people because usually we don't mourn like that. Usually, a great conversation is when you have something seriously to kvetch about. It's just the way it works by Jews. We are professional kvetchers. We did that for survival. It's just the way it works. And the kvetching is for no purpose. And if you try to belittle the kvetch, you ruin the party. Don't worry, it's not so bad. You just kill the whole party. You're a party pooper. That's the way it works by Jewish people. And yet when it comes to Tisha B'Av, Napoleon picked up it's not about kvetching. The Jewish people aren't kvetching. Quite the contrary. Tisha B'Av is about sitting silently. So let me share with you a very interesting teaching from a great man called Rab Chaim Volozhna. Chaim Volozhna in the non-Hasidic world was an outstanding, I mean, he's also outstanding in the Hasidic world, but he himself wasn't from the Hasidic world. Rab Chaim Volozhna said something very interesting. He focuses on the statement that our sages tell us about mourning over the temple. It says, he who mourns over the temple merits to see the temple. And he asked a question. It doesn't speak futuristic, will merit. Rather, it says that as a fact, merits. It's happening. What was Rabbi Chaim Velozhin talking about? What does it mean that if you mourn the temple, you're meriting to see the temple? There's other statements that say those who, who will cry over the temple will merit to see the building of the temple. Those who, who don't build, the temple isn't rebuilt in their generation. It's as if it was destroyed in their generation. But that's not what it says here. Here it's saying clearly, Zoicha, merits. He answers something very interesting. He gives an answer which reflects upon the story of Jacob and Joseph. You remember the story with Jacob and Joseph? So Joseph was gone for a good 21 years, right? What happens? The Talmud says three things. I'm just going to quote one. The Talmud says there are three things that if God wouldn't have done it, it would have been only right that he should do it. That's what the Talmud says. One of those three things is that our loved ones who pass away slowly drift away from our mind. Meaning that we don't consciously every morning wake up with that pain. So I want to share with you an interesting thing that happened, I spoke to a lawyer, very, very nice lawyer when I was li living in Fort Lauderdale, came to my house, he was a lawyer, his wife was a lawyer, and he told me a very phenomenal case that he had. He was suing an insurance company. Why? Because his client was in an accident. Now Nebuch, the client had a very unique condition which is that the way the mind is programmed to work is that you forget the accident, right? At the time, there's the nerve impulse, shoots the pain to the brain, the brain knows it has to react, but eventually the pain subsides, right? Everyone worries about the circumcision, is the baby in pain? A baby, a baby an average baby has less than a seven, span, seven second span memory of pain. So what happens here is that the mind lets go. This woman actually had something wrong on a neurological level, and ever since she had that 
accident, the nerve system kept on sending the impulse to the brain. Now, I hope that you people didn't go through accidents. I was, of course, the right driver. <laughs> no, but anyway, I was an accident. When you get into an accident that's a serious accident, you'll notice that for a while after that, you kind of, in the back of your head, re-feel that impact. Like you just jump. Eventually it subsides, but it's a horrible feeling. You're driving and for some reason something triggers off your memory and boom, you like feel like in the back of your head like you were hit again if you were hit from the back, for example. You just feel it. You actually hear the crashing sound in your head again. That's a horrible thing. Imagine having something wrong off a bit with the nervous system that every single moment you feel like the accident happened again. Parenthetically speaking, they lost the case because the insurance said that we just take upon ourselves the average. We don't take upon ourselves something so peculiar. But be it as it may, let's talk about in our situation. Imagine if God would not have given us the blessing that after someone we love passes away, we'd wake up every single morning as if that was the exact day that it happened. Imagine if there wasn't this gift that you go from the three days of crying into the seven days of remembering, into the 30 days of mourning, into the 11 months of Kaddish, into your side, and then watch time evolve. Imagine if every day you wake up and it's right there again. You hear the, the last dying words. You see in front of your eyes the person you love right there dying. Imagine that would never stop. So Talmud tells us that God gave us a miracle. What's that miracle? That the deceased are slowly forgotten. Now we're going to talk about that word forgotten. Because we don't forget our parents. We don't forget God forbid it was a child. We don't forget. But what it does mean, and for right now what it means is that it isn't as sharp as it just happened. There's a reason why the moment someone passes away, on the spot, you rip your garment. If you're there when actually the person dies, on the spot you rip your garment, not just by the funeral. Imagine having to go through that again and again. So Hashem gave us a miracle. What happened with Jacob? The verse tells us that Jacob could not receive that blessing. He's trying to move on. As far as he knows, Remember the story, right? They took his special coat, dipped it into goat blood, which looks like human blood, showed it to the father, and what is the father's response? My son was attacked by a wild animal and he's killed. And he said, Shiva, he's mourning, he had a very unique relationship with Yosef. But there's a blessing. How come it's not happening? So what happens is that Jacob, our commentaries tell us, said something's wrong here. In God's programs, there's no glitches. God doesn't send out a patch every couple of months. So if God programmed it, that once a person is dead, slowly but surely, we are able to move on with life, and it's not working here, I feel today 
10 years later, 20 years later, exactly the same way I felt the day that my children brought me that coat full of blood. Something's wrong. And what did he know because of that? He knew that Joseph's not dead. Because if Joseph was dead, I would be moving on in life. Not by will or not against my will. It's just a fact that God put into nature. And Chaim Veloshin says, let's go back to what it says here. Let's think about what Napoleon said and let's think about what the sages tell us. 2,000 years later, we're still sitting on the floor, Tishabov. We're still not going to do work the first half a day because it won't be Siman Bracha. We're still dipping our eggs and bread into ashes. We're still taking off the curtain to see that God's mourning with us. Something's wrong. We should have moved on. Says Rab Chaim and now we understand why the sages say Zoyche, not Yiske. Because what we're realizing is what Jacob realized. What we're realizing is that Yosef's not dead. What that means to us with Tishabov, the holy temple is not completely destroyed. By the way, you and I practically do something every single day because of that. Which way do we pray? So much so that according to Jewish law, if, I, if for technical reasons of layout, I would have had to put Aaron Kodesh on that side. When it comes to the Amidah, you don't face Aaron Kodesh, you face these. Why? Because the gateway to heaven, which is the Bet HaMikdash, is still where it is. Why do you and I not go on the other side of the Kotel? Why is there a big sign there in so many languages? Jewish people do not pass this line. That was put by us Jews, not by the Arabs. Because according to Halakha, you're not allowed to go behind the Kotel. Because we are impure, we attended funerals, and behind the Kotel is still Kadosh. To quote the verse of our prophets, God expressed his anger on rocks, but not on the concept of the Holy Temple. The Holy Temple embodies itself differently now. Jacob didn't see Joseph. Jacob didn't even receive a text from Joseph. But the fact that he would not forget, he couldn't move on. Every morning it was as if he was just separated. That doesn't tell us about the depth of Jacob's love. All it tells us is that Joseph is still alive, even though we don't see him. So Rabbi Chaim Velozhin is saying, our mourning here today, in 2013, if God forbid Mashiach doesn't come before Tishabov, tells us that it's not what we think it is. The Holy Temple still exists. I just can't see it. Let's talk about another thing. Rabbi Levitzach Badichiva has a very interesting teaching. What is this Shabbat called? You know what the Shabbat is called? The Shabbat before Tishabov is called Shabbat Chazon. Why is it called Chazon? Chazon means a vision. Why is it called Shabbat Chazon? Because what is the famous Haftorah of the Shabbat before Tishabov? The vision of Isaiah, Chazon Yeshayahu. 
So very often we call Shabbatot, if it's a very famous Haftorah, we'll call it after Haftorah. The one after, the, the Shabbos after the Shabbos is called Shabbos Nachamu, because the famous Haftorah, Nachamu, Nachamu, Ami. We have such concepts. I believe Tzikhabaditchva says that the word, it's called Shabbat Chazon, not because of the vision that Isaiah had, but rather because of the vision that each and every one of us have. And he says a parable. He says there was a father who had a son who was wild. He bought him a suit, and being a nice wild boy, what did he do? He went to Shul Shabbos, went out to the playground, and what did he do with his suit? He destroyed it. So his father bought him a second suit. He goes again out into the playground. He's wild again. He's still a kid. And what happens? He destroys it. What does his father do now? His father buys him a third suit but doesn't give it to him. His father puts the suit into the closet and tells his son, Boichi, come here. You see that suit? It's yours. When you mature enough to appreciate it. So too says Rabbi Hashem gave us one holy temple. What did we do with it? Destroyed it. Hashem gave us a second temple 70 years later. What did we do with it? We destroyed it. So Hashem built a third temple. But He kept it in Shemayim. It actually, the verse tells us, we learn off in the verse, that the, the third temple is actually going to come down from heaven because it's already there. And once a year, Hashem takes us to the closet and says, my child, come. You see that? It's yours. As soon as you mature enough to appreciate it. Go back to what we're learning. What did Chaim Velozhina say? That we're not mourning over that which is gone. Because if we're mourning over that which is gone, then the mourning has to subside. When we say, Azman time, is the greatest healing factor. Time does what it does. That only applies to something that's really gone. If we're mourning that which is really gone, then you're right. However, Joseph didn't die, so the time did not do what it was supposed to for Jacob. The same thing with us. The Holy Temple still exists, and thus, as Jewish people, we can't move on. We're back to Tishabov again. We're back to Tishabov again. Let's reintroduce now the Rebbe's words. This is not what the Rebbe said. I'm sharing with you my understanding. So the Rebbe says, as much as we don't want to stop mourning his wife, that 30-day mourning period, it's a more palatable, tangible, there's real laws there that tell us very blatantly in our face, your wife died. The Rebbe didn't want to move away from that. Because just like love to your loved one expresses itself in the doing, in mourning, it expresses itself in the pain. And again, I tell you, very often when I deal with people who never lost a loved one, my greatest job is to tell them that you can move on and take your loved one with you. Because they're afraid if they go back to earning a living, going back to be a spouse, going back to being a parent, going back to doing what life's doing, so that's it? My parent's really gone? So my job is to tell them no. 
And that's what we're going to do here tonight. What the Rebbe is saying is, I believe, again, what the Rebbe is saying is that to mourn what needs not be mourned anymore is not a real emotion. When you learn in Hasidus the teachings of Kabbalah, you'll find there that the three days, seven days, 30 days, 11 months, year, and your sight is not just about your feelings. It's actually about the soul's elevation. The first three days, it says the soul is confused. It hasn't yet learned. You know, when you sit and you identify yourself with a, with a car for a good 10 years, everyone knows, oh, that guy with the Datsun 280ZX, and all of a sudden the car is gone, you're confused a little bit. Who am I today? So imagine if you live for 120 years with a body. And when you want to know who you are and how you look today, you look in the mirror. So the soul does that. It wakes up in the morning, wants to brush his teeth and look in the mirror. And who am I today? Then it goes back and forth. We're taught in Kabbalah. It actually goes back home. It goes back to the kever. It goes back home. It goes back to the kever. It's confused. This is my house. This is my body. I can't be in my body. I can't be in my house. That's why Shiva is preferably done in the very house where the person lives. Then there's the Shiva. Then there's the Shloshim. And what's actually happening in this process is that the soul is slowly but surely re-identifying itself, accepting its present. Right? Isn't that half your job? Tell people to live in the present? To live in the present. And it redefines itself. Thus, we say Kaddish and we do what we do not about my feelings. It's also about the soul. Now what happens if the soul went from stage Shiva to stage Shloshim? But because I so loved my parents, I'm sitting Shiva for 14 days. Or what happens if the soul went from Shloshim to the 11 months? But I so loved my parents that I'm keeping the laws of Shloshim for 90 days, not 30 days. If the feelings about what I feel, then okay. If I feel it, then I should be able to do it as long as I want. But if it's not about just my feeling, it's about the reality of my connection, then I need to know what I need to know. I need to know that right now, the soul is not in the Shloshim dimension. So if I stay in the Shloshim dimension, it's not productive. I'm not connecting with the soul. There's entire laws that on Shabbat and on holidays, you're not allowed to go to the cemetery. Simply speaking, why is the law? Because Shabbat and holiday is Yemei Simcha, so you can't be in days of mourning, right? Chassidim have another twist to it. You know what the twist is? What are you going? He's not there. It's a very powerful saying what I'm saying. What are you going? He's not there. In Shabbat, he's not by his kever. There's a different dimension where he is. So imagine. Imagine I'm flying to New York to see my parent, and I found out that for Shabbat, he's in California. So if it's about my feelings, I remember him in New York. I don't remember him in California. I'm going to New York. But he's not there. He's in California now. So the Rebbe is telling us something very interesting. 
from my feelings, I want him still to be in Shloshim. Because I want to feel him more. The first 30 days, you're still feeling. You can still smell his pillowcase. But the Torah is telling us it's not where it is. And thus the Rebbe says, as much as Sinish Vilindik, I don't want to move away from this period, but we need to be real. Feelings can be very dangerous. Let me tell you something very interesting. Something I learned in Psycho-Cybernetics. Great book. Your subconscious mind has no sense of reality or fantasy. He gives a very interesting example. You're walking in the parking lot. It's nighttime, you just finished shopping, you walk into your car, the lights are off for whatever reason, and all of a sudden you hear footsteps behind you. Right? Beautiful woman gets nervous. This isn't a safe world. What do you do? You start speeding up. Lo and behold, you hear the footsteps behind you speed up. What happens to you now? What would happen to you physically? Your hands would start sweating. Your heart would start boom, 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 boom. And all of a sudden, while your heart's racing and you're already, your body's reacting, all of a sudden you hear precious Kalanit scream out to you, hey, hey, slow down, where are you running? First thing you turn around and say, don't you ever do that to me again. But now look what just happened to your body. Your body has no sense of a fantasy danger or a real danger. Because your mind thought that God forbid it's an inappropriate guy who's chasing you in a parking lot, you reacted. There's no sense of reality. Let's talk about emotions. Without halakha, without people telling us from above, this is reality and this is fantasy. Imagine. Think about that Hasidic saying. You had no choice. The only time you were going to be by the cemetery was Shabbat. And you decided, I know the halacha, but it's my parent. I, well, you know, I'm not going to be here. I haven't been here. I'm dying to see my parent, you know. And I go to the cemetery on Shabbat to go see my parent. My parent, thank God, is 100, uh, you know, till 120 is uh, physically alive. But talk about that dimension. And I'm sitting there by the kever, and I can tell you that I, I felt his presence. You know, there's that time. You feel the presence. You feel it. And you, you connect it emotionally and then you found out from the Torah <laughs> he wasn't there <laughs> you see what I'm saying Napoleon realized that the Jewish people are not playing emotions there's something real when the Rebbe said to go from Shloshim to the next stage it's because that's the reality of it when Abchaim Velozhna tells us that we don't stop mourning the temple for the same reason Jacob did not stop mourning Joseph, that's real. Thus, the mourning that we have is productive. We're not crying over a vanished yesterday. To cry over a vanished yesterday of close to 2,000 years ago is not real. It may make us feel good. One of the funniest things about guilt. There's nothing to soothe guilt like a good cry. You just gotta get it out, gotta just cry it out. 
question is how real it is. What did you learn from it? What did you take upon yourself? Did you make amends? But we're not here to give a good cry. Tisha B'Av is not about giving a good cry. Oh, did I have a great Tisha B'Av. You should have seen. I was crying. I was hysterical. That's not what Tisha B'Av is about. It's real. It's real because of what Rav Chaim taught us. And that's the laws of productive mourning. Comes the Rebbe and takes it now to the next level. There's a teaching amongst our sages that says as follows. He who learns the laws of a karban is as if he brought the karban. That's the power of Torah study. The power of studying the laws in these nine days of the construction of the temple is not only about mourning the past, but being proactive in the present. Because if what we're crying about, and let's talk about this. I'm going to tell you another story here. Story happens from the Gedit Ebbe. The Gedit Ebbe said as follows. It's a story. It's a very painful story. Not this one, not the one before. The father of the Beis Yisrael and all. When he came to Israel, he lost the most chassidim. Poland, Varsha. That, that was, that was Town. And he lost his children and wife. He came, he was suffering. He sits down, and who comes to visit him? One of his chassidim. What does chassidim come to visit him about? He says like this. He says, Rebbe, I can't go on. I lost my wife, I lost my children, my life is over. I can't go on. When he tells that to the Gerer Rebbe, who went through the same thing, they both sat down there, chassid Rebbe, across the table, and they both were crying. Crying tears. Of, of real pain, of burying or not even getting to bury their family. And finally, the Gerer Rebbe strengthens himself and tells his chassid as follows. It says that Moses broke the luchas before the eyes of the Jewish people. And he asked, why do you mean the eyes of the Jewish people? We know the story, right? He came down the mountain, the Jewish people were there, he saw what they did, he took it, he threw it down and cracked, right? You guys all saw it? Charles Heston? We know what happened. What does it have to say? Yisrael? So the Gerer Rebbe told his chassid like this. Who made those, those tablets? Who made the first tablets? Not just the writing. The second time God wrote, but Moses had to bring up the, the sapphire, right? The stone. The first time everything came from God. Something that's made by God does not get broken. It's that simple. So what happened? The sages actually say that the magical letters left, the rock became heavy and it fell. Right? That's one of the commentaries why he broke it. He said that it's only broken le'ene Israel. We can't see it, but it's here. The letters left. God's creation, the holy tablet, was not destroyed. We can't see it no more. We lost the privilege of having it tangibly before our eyes. And then he went to explain the six million were not broken. They were just taken away from our line of sight. 
but the parents are still parents, the children are still children, the relatives are still the relatives. Let's go back to the Holy Temple. Let's go back to what Rabbi Levi Yitzchuk was telling us. Telling us, Shabbos Chazon, we get to see that God didn't destroy. He just put it in a safe place because we were a little too immature to realize what he gave us. Now, why does he show it to us? Does he show it to us to tease us? You see, you broke the two. I'm not giving you this one. No. Of many things that God is, a dysfunctional parent isn't one of them. So why does he show it to us? He shows it to us to tell us. It's within your reach. This is the next step that the Rebbe takes. The mourning isn't about what was destroyed in the past. Rechaim Velozhna tells us that nothing was destroyed. The Gede Rebbe tells us it's there. It's just not in your line of sight. And the Rebbe tells us, so do something about it. Here's one more closing story. 1950, previous Rebbe passed away, 10th of Shvat. Writes a Jew to the Rebbe that I walk in the streets of the Lower East Side to go do business, and suddenly I burst out with tears. I just cannot embrace the pain of losing my Rebbe. And the Rebbe writes back to him. It's actually, there's photostat copies of this answer. I mean, I personally, 40 years later, witnessed the Rebbe crying over the death of his father-in-law when he would tell a certain story of his, when his father was in a train station. But this is what he writes right after the death. We're talking about in 1950. He writes to the Chassid. Listen to this, the harsh words. Who needs your tears? Tell me what you're doing to continue the work of the Rebbe. Let's see what the Rebbe adds on here to Rabbi Chaim Velozhna. What the Rebbe adds on here even to Rabbi Levitzuk Badicheva. You're telling me that you know it's still alive because you're still crying. Okay. What are you going to do about it? Is that what it is? Is that what we spoke about before? That good cry? How many times, my friends, after we do a sin, I'm being practical here, how many times after we do a sin, we're afraid that we lost our sensitivity to spirituality? But then, Baruch Hashem, we cry. Oh, you see, I still got it. I'm serious. Isn't that how it works in life? We're so afraid. That's it. I lost my Kiddushah. I lost the energy. I'm disconnected. But then when finally I'm able to cry over it, I'm able to be angry over it, I'm able to hate myself over it. Oh, you see, I still have that sensitivity. Baruch Hashem, I'm not disconnected. Is that what Tisha B'Av is about? Oh, Baruch Hashem, I'm still connected. The Beis Hamikdash is still here. I'm going to get to see it this Shabbos. Or is it the Rebbe's final question? The real definition of mourning. Who needs your tears? Tell me what you're going to do to bring the Bet Amigdash back down on that mountain in Yerushalayim. 
That's the ultimate question of a constructive and productive mourning. Because if I'm still crying, that means it's still alive. I wouldn't cry over what's really dead. Not in my own life. If I was really spiritually disconnected, I wouldn't care. How often are we so upset that we're still spiritually connected? It's like that Yiddish mama conscious eating at your brain. It would be so much easier if, you know what, if I really got disconnected. And that's it. Hallelujah. <laughs> Let's party. But that's not what it's about. What it's about is to do something productive. The Jewish religion is not reactive. It's proactive. We don't react to emotions. We create emotions. Why do we create emotions? Because that is the turbo boost to get us to do things. There is no reason to feel anything to God if it won't be productive in making a change. Dr. Rebbe writes in Tanya that love is the turbo engine of all the, two, of all the 248 thou shalt do's. And fear is the turbo engine of all the 365 prohibitions. Thou shall not. So this tish above, what are you looking for? Are you looking to see that you're still connected? Oh, I still have it. I still have it in me. Okay. We're good for another year. Let's call for our friends. Two days after Tishabov, because the day after there's still laws. Two days after Tishabov, let's get together at the beach. Let's have a barbecue. We're going to eat meat after nine days. And don't worry, we're still connected. You should have seen me on Tishabov. Is that what we're looking for? Is that productive? Is that what Judaism is about? So the Rebbe tells us once you hear from Chaim Volozhne and Ablevich Badicheva and the Gere Rebbe that it's here. Now tell me, what are we going to do this Tisha B'Av? Can I tell you one more story? With this are really close? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> they, they say the French leave without saying goodbye. <laughs> and the Jews say goodbye without leaving. Another last story. There was a man who came to the Rebbe of blessed memory. Because we should never know from him, he lost a child. And he actually wasn't Chabad. I don't even know if he was religious. He went to different psychologists. He went to different Rebbes, to different righteous people, to Kabbalists, everyone, to go find, you know, obviously you go find comfort. You're not comforted over burying a child. Our sages tell us that it's the ways of nature to bury a parent. But for a parent to bury a child is not natural. So he was online to go to Yechidus to the Rebbe, private audience. Standing behind him is a Lubavitcher Chassid who also had an appointment to see the Rebbe. But he sees that the guy in front of him is so uncomfortably in pain. So he takes upon himself that the minute I leave, everything is Ashkacha Pratit. There's a reason why I'm standing behind this person. I notice this person's pain. So the Baal Shem Tov tells me that everything I see or hear means that I can do something about it. So right after I come out of the Rebbe's office, I'm going to look for him. The meetings by the Rebbe generally, especially with the Chassidim, were very short. So you go in and you're out. He'll find him and he'll say, listen, I, what can I help you? What are you suffering from? And so it was. 
The guy went into the Rebbe, he stayed there, he talked, he came out. The guy didn't even have a chance to notice his face because he's now going into the Rebbe, so his mind is there. And when he comes out from the Rebbe, he starts looking for the guy. And he finds him. He says, excuse me, I don't know you, you don't know me, but we happen to be set up to stand right next to each other. And I saw your pain, I felt your pain, it was real. And I want to know, what are you suffering? What can I do to help you? So he says, I'll tell you what happened. I lost my child. Never. You should never know from it. And I couldn't find, I couldn't find strength to go on in life. So I went to this professor, this professional, this rabbi, this, and said, finally someone told me, go to the Lubavitcher Rebbe. So you saw me preparing myself to talk to the Rebbe about my child who passed away. So I was, it was just live pain. She said, okay, and what did the Rebbe tell you? He said, the Rebbe told me something that gave me strength, and I hope to be able to go on with this. He said, what did the Rebbe tell you? He said like this, the Rebbe asked me if your son would be alive but was drafted to an army, and he's in the army in a top secret unit. You can't speak to him, you can't meet him, but you know that he's okay. Would you be able to deal with it? He said, Rebbe, of course. Of course it'll hurt me. But I know that my son is serving a certain purpose. He's there, he's alive, he's well. So of course it'd be okay. I I'd rather go out with him with, for coffee every morning, but I'll be okay. The Rebbe says to him, and if the army told you that you can send packages, it will get to him and it will help. He'll be able to use it. Would you send it? He said, of course, Rebbe, he's my son. He said, the Rebbe's face got very white. The Rebbe got silent for a moment. And then the Rebbe told him, I want to tell you that your son is okay. He's in a very special place. And you could send packages, and it will be useful. He looked at the Rebbe, and the Rebbe said, when you say Kaddish, when you learn a Mishnah, which is the same letters as the word Nishama, those are care packages that will get there. And it will be useful. So the Chassid asked him, how are you with that, what the Rebbe said? He said, the Rebbe gave me back my son. Did the Rebbe resurrect the son? No. But he let the father know that your son is, he is okay. And you can even be a father to him. You just can't see him. Let's go back to Tisha B'Av. This Shabbos, Hashem's going to show us the Beis Amikdash is here. We can do it. He's showing us to let us know it's there, it's within reach. So really, Tisha B'Av is not about a reckless, renting mourning of the past. It's a very proactive building of the present and the future. It's letting me know that I can actually connect with the Beta Migdash. I can actually do things. I can study the laws of the Beta Migdash. I can prepare myself to live in the life of the Beta Migdash. We can start learning what's going to happen when Mashiach comes. We're not going to have a Yitzhahara then. So, what's life then? What are we going to look like? What's going to be our struggles? What's going to be our day-to-day -day life? What's going to be my passions? What's going to be my goals? I can learn about it. I can make it a reality. 
and by making it a reality, I'm making it happen for me and for God. And thus I'll close with the conversation you had with me right in the beginning. I told you I'd bring it up. What's the name of this month? Not Av, it's Menachem Av. What does Menachem Av mean? Menachem means the consoler, Lenachem. Who is consoling who? It doesn't say Menachem Ben, it says Menachem Av. We are consoling God. We're consoling God's suffering because God has separated himself from being able to tangibly be seen by us. What greater pain is there to a father who hears his child wondering whether his father still loves him? Menachem of, when we do Tisha B'Av right, when we don't just say Kaddish Uli'itraot, but rather we're connecting. We're connecting with the Bet Amigdash because it's alive to us today. And therefore the fact that I can't get on a plane and go to Jerusalem and bring an offering to thank God, to apologize to God, to live with God, to see His home, to bow at a place, because this is the house of God. The mere fact that God sees that in us, the mere fact that God sees after 2,000 years we didn't give up on this game of hide and seek. We're still looking and we're still finding. That's a productive real tissue above. People, thank you.